Welcome to Buddha at the Aspa. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest today is Lama Surya Das, who is an actual Buddhist. I've had far too few of those considering the name of this show. So it's great to have you on. Thank La you. Maybe you don't need more Buddhists on the show, but more gas. True. Things going. <laughs> I'm good for that. I'm thinking more like hot air, you know. Well, that that end, I see. The <laughs> I thought you meant the other end. Plenty of that kind of gas. People say in Australia that gas implies, they call it petrol, you know, so, so gas yeah. implies some digestive disturbance or something. Yeah, that's, well, we have that too. <laughs> no shortage. Yeah. Natural gas, we call it. Let me read you a little bio here. Lama Suridas is referred to affectionately by the Dalai Lama as the American Lama. He spent over 40 years studying with the great spiritual masters of Asia. He's an authorized Lama in the Tibetan Buddhist order and the founder of the Dzogchen Center. Suridas is the author of the international bestseller, Awakening the Buddha Within, Tibetan Wisdom for the Western World, and 12 other books, including his latest release, Buddha Standard Time, Awakening to the Infinite Possibilities of Now. His blog, Ask the Lama, can be found at askthelama.org. To see his lecture, in, well, I'll be linking to all this stuff from my website, suryadot.org. I listened to, I don't know, six or seven hours worth of your talks uh, over the past week, mostly while cross-country skiing. Well, first of all, you're one of these people to whom I feel like saying congratulations on a life well lived, even though it's far from over, hopefully, but you've really given it your all. I feel happy and grateful. Thank you. Yeah. And same to you. I understand you've been meditating and following your teachers and gurus since, I don't know, if I say when, everybody will know how old we are. Oh, I'm, I'm 1968. 68, yeah. I got into it when I was, well, I, I kind of, first of all, you know, got into drugs a bit, as many of us did, and partly through the inspiration of your friend Ram Dass, who was Richard Alpert at the time. Yes, and, that was uh, the 60s. That yeah. was the consciousness expansion. Yep. Did a bit of that for a year and then realized that was going to kill me. And so I <laughs> learned yeah. to meditate in 68. And you, I was kind of reminded of Forrest Gump when I heard, heard of your life. Yes. Because, you know, not in the sense that you're dumb or anything. I know uh, what you're saying. I, wherever it was happening. I yeah, you were there. By accident, not by smarts. <laughs> I mean, you know, here you were, Jeffrey Miller, growing up on Long Island, uh, studying Judaism, you know, a little bored with that. Then you ended up at Woodstock, and I, I suspect you probably inhaled. Then next thing I hear, you're in India with Neem Karoli Baba and the Das brothers, so to speak. my name. Yeah, Surya Das, Ram Das, Krishna Das, Bhagavan Das, all those guys. Then you end up, I'm, I'm sure I'm skipping a lot, but you end up in Tibet studying in, in monasteries and doing three-year intensives and actually learning Tibetan. So you've really uh, taken this stuff seriously. My girlfriend in the 70s used to call me Sirius Das, <laughs> but I'm much younger now. Yeah, sounds like Dylan. If we take ourselves too seriously, life ain't much fun. So I learned, and you know, there's a lot of joy and, and buoyance and lightness in the path, in the spirit. It's coming. It's coming, yes. I think we get more and more natural as time goes on. I should hope so. Yeah. Less pretentious and less kind yeah. of stuffy. Look at the Dalai Lama. Look at the new Pope. I mean, these guys are just sort of so natural. That's what people yes. love about them. Very inspiring, both of them. And others, you know. No, there's no shortage of inspiring models in the world. People say, where are the gurus today? You know, but some of us say, where are the avid seekers today? Of course, there's both. Anyway, it's not majority rule in the spiritual world, as you know, Rick. To save one soul is to save the world, as it says in the Jewish wisdom book of Talmud. And it's Buddhist bodhisattva thinking is similar. As Buddha said, when I was awakened, all were awakened. 
even the rocks and the trees. I so like that's that. a little hard to understand rationally, but I could retranslate that loosely and say, when I'm clearer, everything is clearer. That's understandable. So I think it's very important, you know, what they call today the power of one, not to overemphasize uh, the self or the ego, but the power of one. Mm -hmm. If I can do it, if the Dalai Lama or the Pope or Jesus, Buddha, anybody can do it, you can do it. Anybody can do it. Yeah. One of the things I was listening to, you said that millions of people have gotten enlightened. And I wondered whether you yes, meant... Yes, I'm sure. I wondered whether you meant throughout history or yes. contemporaneously or what? In generally throughout history. You know, I haven't taken a poll yet contemporaneously, as you said. Is that, so is that the right word? Meaning these days? Not. Doesn't matter. Okay. Who's counting? <laughs> I have a poetic license here. You should use it. Just to say, it's not just one only begotten son of God. There's the Christos, the light, the divine, the Christ principle, the Christos in everyone and everything. Not just only one begotten son. And then what about the daughters, etc.? There's not just one Buddha. There are infinite numbers of Buddhas, as you can find in the Mahayana Buddhist scripture. This isn't just me wailing in the wind here, being gassy. Uh, so there have been millions enlightened. But of course, also, you know, what enlightenment is, how enlightened, who knows? I'm not here, you know, I'm not trying to weigh the spirit with a postal scale. But just to say, it's uh, closer than we think. You know, we may feel far from it. We may feel far from God, the path, Dharma. We may feel far from enlightenment. Let's say, let's use the American word God. It's just a placeholder anyway for the highest, which is, you know, so few can really understand and penetrate. We may feel far from God, but I assure you, uh, God's never far from us, not far at all. Yeah. You know, and this is not original, but it's a good saying. As people say, God hides in the last place that most of us will look inside, mm. inside ourselves. Yeah. Marshi Bashogi said something similar. He said, God may be omnipotent, but there's one thing he can't do. He can't take himself out of your heart. I never heard that. Thank you. That's yeah, a nice one. That's good. You know, that's one Forrest Gump-like uh, scene that they must have cut out of my life movie. I never met Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Uh, but I was at his ashram in Rishikesh. There you go. He was in America at the time, but I was there in 71, you know, when I was visiting um, those Rishikesh and those places mm -hmm. and doing yoga and living in ashrams. So I was at his ashram with the Beatles, et cetera, met him. But I've never really done TM. A lot of friends do it, of course. It's very popular and important yeah. part of Western Dharma, Western spirituality. Well, I'm sure that you're doing just fine, nonetheless. <laughs> right. I'm like a spiritual slut. I've done it with them all, <laughs> spiritually speaking. Yeah, right. Well, we're talking about enlightenment here. Let's, let's make sure we're talking about the same thing and that people understand what we use by the word, because it's one of those words that you know, gets thrown around. And, sure. and if, we, if we don't define it, then we might be saying one thing and a thousand different things are being heard. Yeah, I'm sorry I even brought it up, but now we're stuck. We have to talk about That's it. That's okay. I mean, we should talk about it. That's ultimately what this game is supposed to be all about. So what is it in your understanding? Well, rather than trot out the traditional Buddhist or Tibetan Buddhist definition, I'm using it like a placeholder for the ultimate, even the word achievement is not the right word, the ultimate actualization of what we are and can be. It's a placeholder, like the word God, as I mentioned before, for something the rational mind can scarcely grok or grasp, comprehend. Of course, in Buddhism, enlightenment means sam anuttara, samyak, sambodhi, full, complete, unexcelled, irreversible enlightenment. Not just having an epiphany, a peak experience, a satori or breakthrough to reality, but actually living there. Supposedly, I wasn't there. 
if I, I don't remember, Buddha got enlightened like that under the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya, miles outside Benares in northern India, 2,600 years ago. He's the icon or archetype embodying enlightenment, full enlightenment. Not that nobody else got it. I'm just saying. So that's full, supreme, unexcelled enlightenment. In English, you know, in theistic traditions, we might call it God realization. Ramana Maharshi would probably call it self-realization. You know, it's the ultimate, quote, spiritual achievement. But how to F the ineffable? You can't really express these things. It's not an achievement. It's not like getting from here to there, from here to heaven. It's like getting from here to truly and completely here, 100% here, 200% here. How do we do that? And that's more about being as well as doing, balancing the doing and the achieving and the getting there with the being. Being there while getting there, being there here while getting there, being there while getting there every single step of the way. Every step of the way to heaven is heaven, as a saint said. I think it was St. Catherine of Siena, the Christian mystic. It's yeah. a great Mark, reminder. Mark, used to talk about that too. He used to say that the goal is all along the path. That's right. Every step of the way to heaven is heaven, as St. Catherine said. That's a great reminder for us, people practicing mindfulness or here and nowness or presence or authenticity and aliveness, not to think enlightenment is shinier on the other side of the world or in heaven after we die. Heaven is on earth. There's nirvana, enlightenment within samsara, delusion, as the Mahayana Buddhist scriptures say. But it still remains for us to confirm that rumor, even though it says in the scriptures. We have to confirm it for ourselves. Otherwise, it ain't much good. It's like reading menus doesn't alleviate hunger. We have to eat. Yeah. For instance, I was interviewing Joseph Goldstein a month ago or something, and, and he alluded to Mahayana Buddhism as outlining four stages of awakening, four primary stages. And we didn't really have a chance to get into what those were. Maybe you can tell us about them. But, but to my understanding, enlightenment should be, I mean, even though the, you can't really convey any experience in words, the taste of an orange, you can write a thousand words about it, but you're not going to convey it anywhere near like, you know, the vividness of actually eating one. But nonetheless, there should be certain characteristics of enlightenment, of which which can be discussed and described. Um, much discussed. Yeah. Millennia. Right. Much, For instance, much discussed you know, and written down and also authoritatively, not just random, like Joseph was saying. And Joseph's a great authority among, you know, Western teachers. He's a real pioneer of Western Buddhism, as we call it, since he was Jewish on his parents' side, like me, but Buddhist by training and, and choice. Joseph was alluding to, and he's very knowledgeable about this, but this is not any secret. I mean, that um, there are different kinds of Buddhism, and there are different schemes of the path, just like there are different roadmaps. There are different projections of the world. The Mercator projection of the globe is one, but there are other ways of looking at the globe. There are different ways of looking at the path. In the old original root Buddhism, Theravadan Buddhism, there's the four stages leading to liberation, enlightenment. I could detail them more. In Mahayana Buddhism, which came a little later, later development and more including lay people and more pantheon of archetypes, goddess-like and god-like archetypes, iconography and so on, Mahayana Buddhism, including Zen. There's the 10 stages of the path leading to full enlightened Buddhahood. Uh, in Vajrayana Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism, so-called Tibetan Buddhism, Diamond Path, Tantric Buddhism, there's the four stages of um, like cosmic awareness holder, full enlightenment. So these are different stages on the path, and each is characterized by different, let's call them enlightened qualities, you know, 
transcendental virtues, not just ordinary virtues, uh, you know, divine-like virtues. So in this first four steps of the path, in the first step, you have to experience nirvana. That's called stream entry. When you touch for however long, a timeless moment or minutes or hours even, uh, the stream of nirvana, it's called stream entry, sotapanna, and that uproots some of the basic obscurations like dualism, but not greed. So in the second or third uh, dips in the river of nirvana, this is just a metaphor. It's a deeper dunk. You know, it's like the first dip is like, this is a ridiculous but wonderful, let's say, New York Jewish analogy. It's like if you have a cucumber and you want to pickle it, you can dunk it in vinegar. It doesn't become pickled in one dunk or in one half hour, but it has to sit in it longer and to pickle it. But once it's pickled, it can't go back to cucumber hood, to be funny. Yeah. So similarly, with this scheme of the four steps leading to enlightenment in the original Buddhism, stream entry, once returner to this world, rebirth, non-returner, and then arhat, liberated saint, enlightenment. So that's one scheme. And at each step, you gain more enlightened powers and qualities, psychic powers, enlightened powers or qualities like egolessness, selflessness, unselfishness, like uprooting greed and lust and so on, uprooting the illusion of duality and so forth. That's the path of purification, according to, let's say, Joseph's original school, the old school, uh, original school, Theravada Buddhism. In Mahayana Buddhism, there's the 10 steps, Abhumi steps, stages leading to full enlightenment. And each stage, you uproot some of these kalashas or obscurations, covering the inner light, if you want to call it that, or some call it leaks. You plug or you dry up some of these leaks, you know, like we're leaking lust and we're leaking distracted energy and we're leaking here and there and so that your spirit is more intact it's just another metaphor you burn off the obscurations covering the innate buddha within the buddha nature innate buddhaness the buddha nature within that we're each buddhas by nature we only have to recognize and realize who and what we are so in the mahayana scheme it's more emphasizing that and our buddha nature and burning off the dross the obscurations covering like the clouds covering the innate sun of buddhiness, of wholeness and completeness, our uncorruptible, timeless, beginningless and endless, unborn Buddha nature, Dharmakaya. So it says we're all Buddhas by nature. We only have to recognize or realize that fact. That's the meaning of enlightenment experience. And then when we really stabilize that, mature that, realize that unshakably, irreversibly, we get to the 10th, the 11th stage of Buddhahood. So there's different kinds of enlightenment in each level, not just remove some of the obscurations, defilements, negativities, whatever you want to call them, veils, some call it, but comes with it any powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal monks, like in the Superman song. <laughs> like the power to heal. Like, I'm not just talking about power, of, power tripping or megalomania. The power to heal. Mm -hmm. The power to read minds, know what others need and how to help them. The power of mag you know, magnetizing, brings things together, whatever's needed to fulfill the needs and wishes and aspirations of all the beings. Like, wouldn't it be nice to have the power to restore the earth, the globe, environment mm -hmm. to health and balance? Wouldn't that be nice? So there are psychic powers, there are other, you know, spiritual powers Levitation. and so on. Cities, we yeah. call them. And at each level, they say, I mean, this is Buddhist doctrine, at the first level of the bodhisattvas, the awakening spiritual warrior on the path of Buddhahood, 
you can manifest like 10 beings. At the second level, you can manifest like 100 beings, powers. At the third level, 1,000. Now think about it. We don't know what level the Dalai Lama is on. He doesn't talk about himself. This is not like an army or a Catholic church where you know what rank everybody is innerly. You can't judge that. But he has a lot more power than the average monk or the average person. Power to help, power to inspire, power of purity, you know, and so on. So maybe he's at the second, third, fourth, or eighth level. I don't know. So he can manifest like a thousand or ten thousand ordinary people. So it's not just mysterious psychic powers that one may or may not believe in, but very practical powers like leadership power, the ability, the talent to inspire others, empower others, and so forth. It's very relational, all of this. As you said, enlightenment should have some characteristics or qualities, and it's a path where you develop them, you cultivate them, which is an important part of Buddhism, not praying to some creator or source for blessings and powers and I'm talking about power so much, it sounds strange. <laughs> you know, not praying for enlightenment, not praying to become a better person, although we do, but cultivating being a better person. Like Buddha is as Buddha does, which is one of my book titles about this subject, how to be a bodhisattva in life, a virtual altruist activist, bodhisattva. The reason I find it an interesting topic, the, the idea of defining enlightenment carefully and clearly and precisely, and, and all the stuff you were just saying about all the different levels and stages, is that you know, obviously these days in the West, spirituality is all the rage. There are a lot of people who are... I wish. Well, you know, at least... But among, I know what you're saying. Among yes. our circles, anyway. There, yes. there are a lot of people who are, you know, sincerely and enthusiastically dedicated to or interested right. in spirituality. Uh, there are a lot of people who are having awakenings. I get emails from people all the time, many of whom hadn't even done any spiritual practice, and just out of the blue, one day, boom, something big happened. And they don't know quite what to make of it. And uh, then uh, there's a Tibetan saying, which, I'm, which I often quote, which you may have heard, which is, don't mistake understanding for realization. Don't mistake realization for liberation. I think that, in a way, the understanding of the full range of spiritual possibilities in our Western culture is in a fairly fledgling state. This creates a lot of confusion of people having some little awakening and thinking it's final, setting themselves up as the supreme such and such, you know, <laughs> on the basis of yes. some preliminary thing. It results in, you know, people putting people up on pedestals and just all kinds of, conf and kind of shortchanging themselves really in a way by yes, assuming right. that just gaining some intuitive understanding and mistaking that for the final attainment, they're shortchanging themselves. So I think that the more we can infuse a clear understanding of the full range of possibilities and you know the various stages that one traverses and going through that range, the more valuable it will be for our spiritual engagement in, in the West. Well, that's what we're working on, isn't it, Rick? Yeah. A more profound, meaningful, transformative spiritual engagement. And obviously a culture like Buddhism, which has been around for 2,600 years, has worked this out to a great degree. I mean, the Eskimos have 30 names for Absolutely. snow, you know, and then the Buddhists, right. having been at this game for so long, uh, have really kind of nuanced it to a great degree. Yes, we have 100 <laughs> words for mind or consciousness or spirit or inner light and things like that. But I detailed some of those things before in a semi-scholarly way because you asked me about the four stages that Joseph Goldstein was talking about. So that's the path of purification and the path of enlightenment in, in gradual terms. But to cut through all that, 
like Lao Tzu says in the Tao Te Ching, which I greatly recommend to everybody. It's not a Buddhist text. It's maybe the wisest book ever written. And I like Stephen Mitchell's translation from my students. The Tao Te Ching says, the way that can be weighed is not the true way. You know, the name that can be named, meaning of the ultimate, is not the true ultimate. And that's why some religions, and I'll give a nod here to Islam. They're good at that. You know, also Judaism says there shouldn't be any image of God or of the one because any image is not the real image. It's a human fabrication. There isn't, shouldn't be any name. Of course, there's a thousand names of God, but they're all just placeholders or nicknames, I would say. If you're Jewish, you might know that theoretically we're not supposed to write the word God out because you can't really say the name. So you use a hyphen, right. GWD, if you're writing like a little report in Hebrew school, GWD and in Hebrew. So in Hebrew, we call them Hashem, the name. It doesn't, you know, so you don't say the name of God, Yahweh. Oops. Uh oh. That's me. <laughs> it's impossible to express it in words or for the rational mind to comprehend it, but it doesn't mean it hasn't been talked about, discussed, and experienced. So, as you were saying, there's a difference between, and this is a spectrum of development of wisdom and realization, information and learning and understanding and knowledge and experience and insight and even further insight, self realization, you know realization, liberation, and enlightenment. So wisdom is over here, and information, which, you know, we live in the over-information age, but I don't know how much good it does us on the spiritual side. You know, a lot of information, so a lot of understanding or a lot of knowledge, but not that much insight, self-knowledge, and wisdom. So the spiritual path to move, you know, to, again, to cultivate wisdom and develop wisdom, we can develop it. It's like our muscles. We all have it within, but they're not all firm. They're not all very healthy. Some are very flabby from disuse. So cultivating that and not just mentally, experientially, you know, both sides of our brain to talk modern, the intuitive as well as the rational sides of our brain, the masculine and feminine energies, very important to include the body and soul, the heart and mind. So I think that's important to remember. And, you know, to, if we're in a theistic tradition, to really bring God into our lives or become closer to God or goddess and to realize it not just in ourselves, but in each other and all and everything, to see the world that way as like an altar and everyone and everything as the gods and goddesses on it. A, bit, a luminous perception of, of oneness, what we call in Tibetan the natural great perfections, Ogchen, everything perfect and complete as it is, even though we could still use a little tweaking. We're still working to become better people and work for a better world. And yet there's a deep acceptance or equanimity or centeredness amidst it all, taking in the big picture, you know, developing gradually through time on the gradual path of enlightenment, as well as in the fourth time, the holy now, divine time that bisects every moment of horizontal linear time, timeless time, the fourth moment being totally here now, divine time, not just the changing times in every moment. So it's not, so that's called sudden enlightenment. And in Buddhism, at least, there's been a 1500 year old debate about whether, you know, Buddhism, not Buddhism, enlightenment is sudden or gradual. And I think it's sort of both and. Gradual Buddhist. cultivation, sudden realization. That is not co contradictory, complementary. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's some Buddhist fellow, you probably know his name, who contemporary, who said, Enlightenment may be an accident, but spiritual practice makes you accident prone. Yes, Robert Aitken Roshi, Zen master, very wise saying. There you go. And so in Tibetan Buddhism, we say, you know, similarly, because we don't live 
in the world of oneness and non-duality. We're animals and we're human beings and we have rational minds. We live in a world of duality, although that is actually the oneness itself. But, you know, the one is in the many and so forth. But in the world of duality, there's cause and effect and karma and there's helpful and harmful acts and so on. So even in the great perfection, you know, that's the view from above. But the view from below is climbing up the mountain, you know, through ethical practices and mind training and good deeds and help altruism, developing loving kindness and compassion and everything. All the spiritual virtues common to pretty much all the sacred traditions in the world. So balancing that, swooping down from above, we call it in Tibetan Buddhism, swooping down from above with the big picture, the view, oneness, equality, great emptiness, we call it in Buddhism, while climbing up the spiritual mountain or path from below through relative practices, yeah. ethical morality, good deeds, and so on, trying to get a better rebirth, as they say in Hinduism, trying to ascend the ladder of enlightenment, as they might say in Buddhism, climbing up the path from below according to our relative capacities and aspirations. So swooping while climbing, not just swooping like skiing straight down the, the mountain and having a crash landing. And not just climbing and losing sight of the whole forest because we're lost in the trees and fighting other way over with the, with the other religionists, whether you should go left or right. It might look like you're going in different directions, but all ascending the same mountain with the same goal. So, you know, generally speaking, not theologically. Even the Dalai Lama says, let's not argue about the difference between heaven and nirvana. Let's just recognize the very similar same goal for now. Leave those theological nuances and differences for the theologians to work out. So I think of like swooping while climbing, like being there while getting there, like seeing the one and the many, seeing... Our Buddhist practice is seeing the Buddha or the Buddhaness, the Buddha nature, the perfection, the beauty in all and everything, not just the people you love and like, and your kids and your mother and your mate and your dog. Cats, eh, oh, your dog, cats. <laughs> all beings, yeah. not just human beings. This is a challenge, and this is where Buddhism maybe has a little bigger purview than Christianity. I don't know. I'm rooting for my team here. All beings, the Buddha nature in all beings. All beings endowed with the spirit, not just human beings. Sure. That's why we don't kill animals and so on, or even become vegetarian. Not just human beings have this inner light. I don't want to say soul. It's not a Buddhist word, but inner light, the spirit. Well, if this inner light or spirit or pure self or whatever <laughs> we want to call it is the ultimate reality, if it's the ground state of the universe, from one perspective, it could be said to be all that exists, actually. But if we want to sort of concede to duality, then at least it's it's got to be at the core of everything. Yeah, you know, well, it's all, all pervasive. All beings, all rocks, for that matter. Everything. Buddhist teaching of nothingness is not nihilism. It's, you know, these things are not a thing, but also it's everything. So if we can hold that at the same time, then we have a bigger mind, you know, the both, excuse me, both ends. Where electrons are both waves and particles. Uh -huh. You know, they've been arguing for years whether it's wave or particle, but they're both and neither because it's hard to print it down. Just like we're neither one nor separate. We're not entirely one, but we're not entirely separate. It's the Cirque's paradox. It's paradoxical. That's why. The, the, the remember the Cirque's commercials? Cirque's is a candy man. No, Cirque's is a breath man. Yes. Remember like those? Cirque's is two minutes in one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> two in one. The duality in, in the unity. The unity in the duality works mm -hmm. both ways. The God in, I don't want to say man, that's old language, God in us, people, all beings, and all beings in God. 
if you want to use those words. It's very, it's like finger painting, it's kind of imprecise. But what it does is this finger painting, these songs and poems and scriptures, and all of this is, is very imprecise uh, once it's translated and watered down into language, human and rational thought. The intellect is an excellent servant, tool, but a poor master. The problem is we're too much under its thrall. That's why silence or other irrational kind of like art are, are beautiful. It's like spirit alive at work outside of religion, outside of organization, outside of politics and churches. You know, the church is a political institution, every church, every religion. That's that like the building, but the living spirit inside the building or the church of the people, the living spirit is what's important, not the building or the group. The group is important, community is important, but the, the real church, you know, is the living spirit. And inside the living spirit, the heart of it, the heart's blood is, is like the mystical experience or the, the experience, the, the isn't it, the, the, in the beginning was the logos, you know, that's what it says. It doesn't say was the word, was logos. And what does logos mean? The law, reality, as it is, truth, it's hard to translate. Not in the beginning was the word. Like, it's like Om. In the beginning was the Om, but what is Om? It's just cosmic vibration. Kind of primordial impulse or something. Primordial vibration or energy, undifferentiated. Even in Om, it's already like become differentiated. Mm. Getting back to the swooping and climbing for a minute, um, what, what I have seen is that there are definitely people who are swoopers and others who are climbers and who haven't quite integrated the two. Um, in other words, there are people who take, I think, a largely intuitive or intellectual view of the ultimate reality and go on to say things like, well, you know, since there is no person, there can be no valid practices because practices are only going to reinforce the notion of a practicer, of a, of a person, and therefore you really can't do anything. And, yeah, they go on and on like that. And yeah, that's okay. But this is what I have to say to that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and then there. And why are they talking about this? Yeah, why are they giving yeah, seminars? What was their practice? Their way. They would probably. Their way is also a way. The formless is one more form. I'm sure you've run into this. I like Buddhism. Middle way. I'm not saying Buddhism. Middle way of balance. Not too much nihilism. Not too much material realism. Everything is what it seems to be. The middle way, and there's many lanes in the middle way. Not just the razor's edge down the middle. There's many lanes. Mm -hmm. Let's just try to stay out of ditches of, on one side, nihilism. On the other side, sort of materialism or realism. Everything is just what it seems to be. Because things are not what they seem to be. But as it says in the Buddhist scripture, things are not what they seem to be, nor are they otherwise. Yeah. Ah! I'm going to be interviewing That's a physicist a next. It is. I'm going to be interviewing a physicist next week. And, you know, a, a physicist would tell you that, Ultimately, you know, if you analyze a bus, there's no bus there. You know, it's it's just sort of kind of unmanifest probabilities or something. You know, in the vacuum state. But to try stepping in front of one, uh, you you have to kind of respect the laws of nature at every level right. of creation. So that's why, with like swooping and climbing, it is or being there while getting there is an example of just the general doctrine of two levels of truth or reality, like absolute and relative or conventional, like in old language, God and man, you know, there's heaven and earth, but they're not that separate. They're intermingled, I think, is the way to look at it. So um, 
in the absolute, nothing matters. We're all going to die. Uh, you know, the planets are going to go back to the sun, and the sun's just a tiny dot in the Milky Way, which is just a tiny dot in the universe. Let's not forget that perspective. Mm-hmm. So how, how, you know, how much does it matter if I have a bad hair day or a bad hair life? <laughs> in the scheme of billions of beings' life, just on this tiny dot of a globe. Mm. And yet... Does it not matter a lot whether you kick or kiss your child when you send them out the door to school in the morning? Of course it does. And it'll be insane to think otherwise. So balancing the absolute picture, what we call shunyata, badly translated as emptiness or voidness, kind of subjectivity, with the relative truth of karmic formations and and cause and effect, that one thing leads to another and different parts and you know, the nucleus is different than the atom, the protons and the neutrons to go to your physics level. And there are parts that comprise the atom and the atoms comprise the molecule and the molecules, you know, the elements and the elements comprise whether it's buses, cars, like you said, step inside of in front of a bus, see what happens. Yeah. And a bus is different than a motorcycle and a motorcycle is different than an orange. That's the world we live in of duality. As soon as there's two, there's two billion myriads. There's but in the oneness, there's no differentiation. There's but a that's sense. not necessarily better. Right. It's that's just, just vanilla. One there's dimension. Many other it. flavors. There's a Sanskrit saying, "Ano raniyan mahato mahiyan," which means greater than the greatest, smaller than the smallest. And I think they should add everything in between. Like you were just painting this picture of the galaxies, and and recently NASA said they think that it might be about forty billion planets that potentially are inhabitable in our galaxy alone in our little galaxy alone yeah and of course there are billions of galaxies but anyway i mean that's the cosmic picture but then you know as you say you don't kick your child there's a difference between virtue and vice let's bring it down to that level kiss or kick you choose and we were trying to define enlightenment earlier i would say that one definition would be having established the I don't know if ability is the right word, but the capacity to incorporate within one, the, one's range of experience the cosmic vastness uh, and the minutiae at the same time, you know, the, yes. every, every little iota of experience in, in our human life and, and having those two so perfectly integrated or balanced that one does not usurp the other, but they all kind of harmoniously right. support one another. So that's what we call of the middle way or a way of balance and integration. Integration is very important. And Ken Wilber has a life work about this called Integral Theory. And his 20 books are a wonderful contribution to a modern thought. But uh, I think to be practical, the question is always, how do we bring it down to our life? How do we live in a more enlightened way and even bigger, contribute to a more enlightened society, family, world? So how do we? What do you advocate? Well, I advocate very simple day-to-day practices, cultivations. Which you teach. And, well, teaching is one of them, perhaps. But um, I know, mean, you, you teach these such practices for people. Yeah, to, I, I teach yeah, yeah. meditation and chanting and prayer and yoga, Tibetan yoga and mm-hmm. self-inquiry. And also I encourage questioning and shaking the tree, you know, not just believing what you hear. Openness, always trying to cultivate or maintain, you know, these are just words, an open mind, an upbeat attitude, a positive attitude, or even to what the dark side, what we don't like. Love is big. Unconditional love is huge. That's what we're cultivating. Much bigger than the polarities over here of like and dislike, much smaller. Love 
and like and dislike. So very practically living a sane, mindful, uh, unselfish life. If I use boring words, you know, an ethical, moral life. Those are good words. Yeah, I'm just saying, you know, people, like you said, spirituality is hot today. I don't think ethics is, but these are timeless evergreen subjects. Very important. You know, try to help your children grow up and have character and be mensches. You know, real decent people, not the opposite. Maybe ethics should be hotter because, I mean, there have been so many instances in spiritual circles where there has been a, a lack of it and people have gotten in trouble and done all kinds well, of crazy stuff. Not, people that live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, but if you ask what I do or what I believe in or advocate was your word, then having a spiritual life, first of all, you have to say that because a lot of people say, you know, you know I don't go to church, synagogue, whatever, I don't believe. You know, we live in the postmodern era. So, you know, people are too smart for their own good or something. And so mental and losing touch with the heart and, and, and the love. So I think, you know, finding a real way of life that what, what Native Americans call hozo, harmony and beauty, not just outer beauty, but inner beauty and character and, 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 and beautiful, relate, harmonious, loving, meaningful, meaningful, authentic relations. So in Buddhism, we have... You know, Buddhism, we don't pray to God for these things. We cultivate, we practice them. Cultivate, bhavana is the key word, cultivate. We cultivate mindfulness, being open and aware in every my moment, here now, like dogs are good at doing. <laughs> dogs may have other weaknesses. I think that she's thinking of breakfast. I think. That's one reason we love little children and, and pets. They're so in the moment. Mm -hmm. Of course, we have to become again like little children, not stay in a state of arrested development, we have to become more childlike, not childish. Right. So there's a discern discrimination to be made. So um, mindful living and ethical living and generous loving and you know compassion and action and so on and sort of mindful relations also beautiful and not just mind heartful soulful relationships also is a big part of it. So that's what I advocate. And Some people say that violence and loving kindness in action is mm -hmm. very, very important. I want to mention in our violent times. Some people say that you can only act from your level of consciousness. That that's true. Uh, that you know you can't necessarily be ethical if you have a level of consciousness that doesn't sort of spontaneously express ethical qualities. And so that the horse versus the cart is raising the level of consciousness. Absolutely. And then the cart, namely ethical behavior, will follow. Absolutely. Agree? Yes. That's what I said about spiritual life. I advocate cultivating and having a spiritual life, which anybody can do. You know, people joke and say, oh, my wife has the spiritual gene, but I don't. You know, it's not a matter of a gene. So anybody how do you have a spiritual have, life? How? It doesn't have to be a spiritual religious life. It could be a secular, ethical, and impeccable life. I don't know who would be a good example of that. Nelson Mandela, he just died. Yeah, Nelson Mandela is not a religious leader, he, but he's very, you know, wonderful. Yeah. Not he, without defects. He, right, but he taught by his example of forgiveness and, yeah. you know, had an influence on a whole country by right. virtue. He could have gone the other way and you know, yes, sought retribution. Right. You know, there are secular saints also. So uh, inside and outside the religious traditions, there's still humanism and human values and um, other you know, great virtues. So I think it's important to be open to that. And of course, education is the key, is the silver bullet. You have to bring these things into the home, to our own example, not just the words, because the kids learn from what we do. And you said what we be, 
not just what we say, mm-hmm. right? They get, they learn and they become, they model what we be. Um, and that's about consciousness. That's about the inner, not what we say and or what we do. And uh, at the home and then in, in education, we need to bring the wisdom back into education, not to mention higher education. Where's the higher in higher education today? It's just like mere vocational training. So I think ethics and, uh, you know, attention and concentration exercises could be helpful. I'm not, you know, not even mentioning bringing religion into the classroom because that's a much hot topic in this country of ADHD children and Ritalin over prescriptions, concentration and attention exercises, uh, non-competitive sports like martial arts and yoga and things could be so helpful for kids in their body and mind, heart and soul, attention span, concentration, focus, all of these things. And then later leading to self-inquiry and self-knowledge and spiritual realization. So that's the kind of thing I'm writing and thinking about these days. Beyond my, you know, 15 books on Buddhism and on meditation and Eastern thought. Yeah, there are some good programs like that. I mean, you've probably seen, you've seen that movie, Doing Time, Doing Vipassana, where they're yes. teaching Vipassana in the prisons. And I know right. there's a lot of programs like that in the U.S. And uh, the David Lynch Foundation is teaching TM in prisons and schools and in the inner cities and yep. stuff. So, yeah, and there's a lot of mindfulness. Happens. Mindfulness yeah. without the Buddhism necessarily component, mm-hmm. mindfulness and awareness cultivation in every hospital, mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness in schools. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is all good. And so I think we try to bring this into the mainstream by making it very secular. And today it has to have data attached to it for people who believe it's so scientific. So there's a lot of good new neuroscience techniques and studies about the yeah. benefits, especially the health benefits of these things. Mental and physical health is a huge new Dharma door, a gate for Western society that these practices and values are coming in through. Well, it's interesting, you know, because you mentioned the Ritalin and, and all the kids with ADHD and stuff like that. It's almost like uh, the way we've been doing things has gotten to the point where it's proven to be so deficient, you know, so inadequate. And that in itself has made people open to other possibilities and, and, you know, open to things which might have seemed too out there, too unconventional a few decades ago. And so this, this stuff that you're mentioning, it's, it's seeping into the culture rather quickly, as far as I can see. It definitely is. And um, it's being well studied and researched, and it's much less threatening than it was some time ago, you know, when people were worried and had to kick the loonies off campus or out of yeah. the, the Harry Krishna dancers, enchanters out of the airports. And, you know, mindfulness and the new neurodharma, as I call it, neuroscience, about neuroplasticity and how intention and consciousness can change your mood and your, you know, happiness quotient and things like that. This is all very much acceptable now today, and this is a good direction. But it's not without its downside, you know. It can be a bit reductionistic because there's not a lot of enlightenment or sacred values in it, but there's good mental and physical health values in it, humanistic values. And so I'm all for it as long as the rest doesn't get lost. You know, like modern Judaism and Christianity in this country has become so uh, watered down that we lost the mysticism, although the mysticism is still there, no doubt, underground. So with the Eastern thought traditions that are newish in this country in the last hundred years, I'd like to just keep an eye on not being overly reductionistic and scientistic and also keep alive the mystical or hard to measure elements and the goal and purpose, which is total transformation. 
God realization, self-realization, so-called enlightenment, Buddhahood, enlightenment, by any other name, it's still a sweet. Better to become a Buddha than a mere Buddhist. That's what I always say. Yeah, well, that's all, certainly been my motivation or orientation all these years. But, you know, one thing kind of leads to the next. And, and if you want to come into a school system and, and offer complete enlightenment and Buddhahood, you're probably not going yeah, to get good too luck. far. But, you know, if you start with, let's say, a yoga class in the local yeah. Y, the people do that for a while, and then they think, well, right. you know, what more is there to this? And then it will, kind of they start getting motivated to look a little deeper. Or chanting and breathing as concentration exercises or walking meditation. You know, even without the word meditation, just walking on a line on the tennis court or on the rug or on the beach is a great concentration practice for kids mm -hmm. and can be done in a group as well as individually. It's very easy and there's no beliefs or theology attached to it. Yeah. So it's, it's really important to be bringing these things in to our child rearing and education, but also to circle back to what you're saying, into our own lives, not just what we do, but our state of consciousness, who we are and what we be, that's crucial. So it comes back to practicing or, or walking our talk, practicing what we preach. So since you asked what I advocate, I'll take another cut at this, at the same pie, really. I teach besides the three trainings of Buddhism, ethical character development, meditation and concentration, and wisdom and self-knowledge, the three trainings, the Eightfold Path of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. I teach a non-Buddhist or sort of not just Buddhist, six building blocks of enlightenment or six building blocks of a personal spiritual life. First, having a daily-ish spiritual practice like meditation or yoga or prayer or something daily-ish, personal, individual, what we could do, do it. it means not just go on Sunday once a week, Daily-ish personal spiritual practice, mm -hmm. like we meditate every morning and night or some things like that. And second, some form of study or learning. Otherwise, you don't know what you're doing. Some learning to do and do better. So study and practice or theory and experience goes together, experiential learning, theoretical. So study and practice. And third, if you're not a book person, study could mean opening the book of nature, introspection, studying your relationships and things. And third, some form of working on yourself like therapy or men and women's groups or um, journaling, creative work, some form of inner growth work. So these first triad of the six building blocks of a spiritual life is more alone-ish, daily spiritual practice, study or theoretical background, and inner growth work and inquiry. And the next triad of the six is more with others-ish. Fourth, group practice, community practice. It takes a village. It's hard to do it alone. Maybe you have kids, jobs, in-laws, and so on, and take care of your old elders in your mother-in-law apartment. So it's hard to do alone practice. But group practice, family, community, volunteering. And, and, and fifth, a teacher practice. Having some elder or teacher or advisor, spiritual mentor can be very, very helpful. And sixth, Service, giving back, very important. So these are with others practices, group or community practice, teacher working with elders and those who are a little further along on the path practice. And the last one, last but not least, seva, service to God through serving humans, seva, serving the highest or serving the lowest, seva, volunteering, generosity, compassion and action, all, you know, good parenting, being an informed citizen who votes, 
participating. So all of this. So three alone-ish and three with others ish, six building blocks of a spiritual life, like a non-sectarian enlightenment program for the postmodern era. Don't be overwhelmed, listeners. If you do any one of them or two of them, it'll definitely change your life. Everybody doesn't need to have a teacher guru. Everybody doesn't need or want to belong to a group. Everyone doesn't isn't a studier. But just look at the idea. It's a kind of balanced, well-rounded program. So pick up what you can. And the good news is, my friends, we're already doing it. Some of us are doing parts of it or all of it already. This is not very foreign. So rejoice and fortify those parts of your life. And sometimes it's different things at different stages. A person will go through a right. stage where they're doing a whole lot of seva, for instance, and another right. st- maybe a different stage where they're reading a lot of books. And then they, they get exactly. to, they, then they feel, I can't read another book. I'm going to go out and you know do this. So you, you, well, they're not all necessarily alone, simultaneous. Yeah, when you're young and single, you can study a lot or do solitary things or go on retreats and pilgrimages by yourself. Mm-hmm. As I said, when you're older, maybe you have kids and in-laws and up-laws and down-laws and a neighborhood to take care of. So it's hard to do alone, but you do the group practices. And any one of these can take you all the way, by the way. That's the secret of the eight-limbed yoga, not just physical yoga, but service yoga and devotional yoga and philosophy yoga and mantra yoga and meditation yoga and all of these yogas. Any one of them can take you all the way. Devotion, service can take you all the way. That was the path of Mother Teresa. She wasn't an intellectual. Theoretic, I guess, uh, study can take you all the way. I don't know who to quote on that, but there are some philosophers like, I don't know, who are very rational, like Krishnamurti maybe, or I don't know, St. Thomas Aquinas. It seems like study took them all the way. I don't know. It kind of depends on how you're wired. Yes. Different strokes for different folks. Some people are intellectual. Some people are devotional, emotional. Some people are real simple and they just want to. I mean, Shankara's main disciple was named Trotika. And there was a story where um, Shankara had four main disciples. And the other three were sitting with Shankara waiting for the discourse to begin. And they were the big intellectuals. And and, uh, Shankara and Trotika was down by the river washing the clothes. And the other three were saying, why are we waiting for this guy? He doesn't understand the discourses anyway. And then at a certain point, they heard this beautiful melody coming from the river and getting closer and closer, this unknown new way of, of devotional singing. And it turned out it was Trotika. And through his devotion and his service, he had spontaneously attained enlightenment. And he was the one who became the, the principal of the, the four Shankaras, Shankaracharyas. He established the seat in Jyotirmat. Um, so I didn't it, know that story. That's marvelous. Yeah, so that, he was just this simple guy who was... Only yeah, good for we have Buddhist clothes. stories like that too. Buddha had a disciple who couldn't memorize and learn anything, so Buddha gave him the job of sweeping the mud off the sandals. And every, you know, this dumb monk's brother, the monk's name was Chandika, Chandika the dumb monk. Let's call him for simplicity's sake. Yeah. His brother was a very learned pundit, but this guy couldn't memorize anything. But he got enlightened by sweep. He said the mantra. The Buddha taught him this mantra: sweeping the dirt purifying the mind, sweeping the dirt, purifying the mind. And somehow that mantra, you know, purified his obscurations and he got enlightened just like his brother, who was more of a thinker, philosopher. And I'll bet you that when he did get enlightened, then he had all that sort of refinement of intellect and wisdom and all that other stuff that would ordinarily be associated with having studied a lot. I don't know if it all comes together like that, but it doesn't have to because Let's name names. I love to name names. It's very abstract. Sure. Everybody knows Krishna Das today, my dear brother from Long Island, right. Jeff Cagle, you know, Krishna Das, the great chanter. 
What's the point of telling him he should study philosophy? He, he's got his practice and his guru. Yep. So it, it doesn't mean that when he realizes God through bhakti devotion and oneness and all that, that I, he'll be a great philosopher. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is that everything is it. Yeah. It doesn't have to be diverse or complicated, you know, complexified. Everybody doesn't have to be a Renaissance spirit like Ramakrishna who had a vision of every saint of every religion somehow. Well, you pull any one leg of a table and the whole table comes along, right. all, all the other legs of the table itself. So, Since now you've talked to me for a while, Rick, and you know me, why don't you ask me something that you think would be particularly interesting for us or for people that, you know, to ask me, not all of your guests kind of thing. I don't know hmm. what to say. I'd like to chant something at the end to take us out of just the mental yeah, sure. word realm, nice, yeah. but the end is not yet. <laughs> so I will the chant end, at the end. The end is near. It's not over till the fat llama sings. <laughs> I could ask you what they asked Bill Clinton, boxers or briefs, but I don't know if that would be too relevant. Both. But, okay. Both and nothing. <laughs> they asked other things of Bill Clinton too. They answer all questions. Well, one thing that I find interesting, maybe this takes us back into the sort of theoretical, but I kind of find it interesting that I don't know a heck of a lot about Buddhism, but I always hear that, well, Buddhism doesn't concern itself with God and doesn't even maybe believe that there is a God or something. Right. And yeah, I bet you, if you got right down to it, put Jesus and Buddha and, and you know some of the great Hindu leaders and, and Muhammad and so on in, in the same room, there wouldn't be a heck of a lot of disagreement, if any, among them. So I, I sort of think that maybe it's a matter of what we mean by God. Maybe it's a matter of relevancy. Maybe Buddha just felt like, don't spend your time thinking about things that aren't immediately germane to your to your realization. But that's, what Buddha's, that's Buddha's point uh -huh. to the people he was talking to. He, grew, he was Hindu, like Jesus was Jewish, grew up Jewish. Buddha was a Hindu. And so... For him, there was no point talking more about God and the gods. That was all around. Mm -hmm. So he didn't find what he was looking for that way. He found it by meditating and by realizing, I, I don't know, the ultimate, which he chose to call enlightenment rather than Shiva or Vishnu or Brahma or all those things that he was brought up in and studied and very familiar with. So when people asked him about God, he said, that's not part of the path of enlightenment that I teach. That's all. But they didn't ask him about God. God is a Western word. To go back to my very um, relevant point in the beginning, God, the word God, as we're using, is a placeholder. They asked him about Brahma. So he said, Brahma is not part of the enlightenment I teach. It doesn't mean there's no higher power. He's saying Brahma is not, part, you know, this notion of God separate from us or the creator God is not part of the enlightenment I teach. Yeah. The enlightenment yeah. I teach is possible through this three trainings, this eightfold path, developing total wisdom and compassion and so on. And that's, that's something we can do with cultivating what's in us. That's like the whole message. So it's not like there's some... no God. Buddhism is not atheistic, as right. some ignorant people would say. It's agnostic. Who did not take that position? Okay. Didn't take a position on God because he didn't need to. And all around him was the many gods of Hinduism of the time. So it's so like you're in an algebra class and you're supposed to be studying algebra and you raise your hand and say, well, tell me about trigonometry, right? And the professor's just going to say, well, sorry, this is an algebra class. So basically that's what Buddha was saying. It's, this is not part of the enlightenment I teach. Here's the way I'm presenting it. Is that what you're saying? Yes, except I, I would not use that analogy 
you know, don't pass that on exactly by listeners because mathematics, algebra, trigonometry is kind of a hierarchy. Sequential thing. Yeah. Let's use this analogy. Does psychoanalysis believe in God? No. Psychoanalysis is a certain kind of science. Some people, you know, medical or mental health science. Some people believe in God. They may be Jewish or whatever they are. And some are atheists. But psychoanalysis itself is not a religion or a theistic tradition. It doesn't believe in God, but it's not atheistic. It doesn't say there's no God. Does medicine believe in God? Some doctors do, but, you know, medicine doesn't need God, and it doesn't say there's no God. So Buddha's enlightenment, and therefore the Buddhism that came from him, he didn't really start it, you know. Buddha wasn't particularly Buddhist, but Buddha was an enlightened teacher. People started Buddhism based on his teachings. It doesn't really deal with God in that sense. But then you have to find what does it mean by God? So it doesn't really believe in or use the idea of a creator God or a three-part God like in Hinduism, creator, sustainer, transformer, destroyer God, or a God separate from ourselves. God or God is separate from ourselves or some ultimate being, you know, our notion of being kind of anthropomorphized like a person with a white beard or a buxom goddess. I don't know. Well, here's the reason Buddhism has a different idea of the ultimate. But right. when people say, then how is it a religion? You say, well, religion doesn't have to be defined by having a God. Taoism doesn't have a God in it. You know, these are religions. There are monks, there are rituals. It's one of the seven great world religions, but it's not a theistic. It's a non-theistic, not atheistic. It doesn't deal in God. But it doesn't deny God. It's not atheistic. And it doesn't preclude being like a Jewish Buddhist like some rabbis are practicing Buddhist meditation, or a Catholic Buddhist. There are even Catholic priests in good standing with the church who are Zen Buddhist masters. Some of my friends, yeah. they're around, they're well-known. This is not, you know, unknown. Just like they're, yeah. I don't know, Jewish or Catholic or whatever, probably Hindu yoga teacher. You don't have to be Hindu to be a yoga teacher, but you can be. In India, they were. But here, who knows? You could be a Jewish yoga teacher. You could be a psychoanalyst yoga teacher. You could be a scientist yoga teacher. So it's a non-theistic path of awakening. Why use the word religion? It's yeah. a path of enlightenment. And that's the whole thing in a nutshell about God. Interestingly, one of the fundamental, not fundamentalist, one of the original and good, best Buddhist journals, The Inquiring Mind, which is sent out free from the Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg Nexus of Insight Meditation, the Inquiring Mind, you can Google it, just did a whole issue called the God Issue, where they asked different Buddhist teachers and not Buddhist about this, what the God that? Issue, discussing these things, whether God is you know, necessary or not necessary. Some people took a more uh, fundamental stance, like there's no room for God in Buddhism, and some people took a more, I don't know, interfaith stance. Well, the reason I raise the question is that, you know, when we started out this interview talking about what enlightenment is, and to my understanding, enlightenment with a big E would be complete fathoming and incorporation of reality in and out, is, as it is, you know, just the, the complete experiential appreciation of the full range of, of creation of, of reality. Uh, from unmanifest through through all the realms of manifestation and incorporating that within one's human experience to the extent that's humanly possible. And as I grow in my own experience over time, I just find myself appreciating more and more and marveling more and more at the 
vast intelligence that seems to permeate every particle of creation, every cell, you know. I mean, even look at your hand. It's such an amazing it's contraption, amazing. contraption, you know. Um, and if you if you look at a cell in detail, it's like it's as complex as a huge Amer you know, modern yeah, city. Galaxy. Yeah, yeah, and we only understand a little tiny fraction of it. So on every level you look, if you're looking, there is this uh, unfathomable intelligence. And that to me is God. And I, I, I feel that, uh, and there are scriptural and you know historical uh, precedents for this, that one can come to appreciate and experience that intelligence much more richly and intimately than I do, certainly. And that's why you have these great bhaktas like, you know, Mirabai and Anandamaima and so on, who are just drunk with the love. Surdas, yeah. Um, and so anyway, when when Buddhism doesn't address that, and I admittedly... No, Buddhism my, addresses that. But, okay. Yeah, Buddhism would call that Buddha mind. Okay. So realizing that is enlightenment. You can call that God or God's mind or God's heart or God's eye. What Ralph Waldo Emerson called it transparent eyeball. That was his big mystical experience that he said everything he taught and wrote came out of that. His experience of himself as God's transparent eyeball. So if you really, so if you really understand what Buddha, Buddhism means by Buddha mind, then it's not some flat, it's like divine flat, mind. plain vanilla thing. It's something really rich and profound, and it's not empty. Right. It's shunyata. It's not a thing, but it's a luminous void. It's mm -hmm. cosmic consciousness. Your definition of God sounds like cosmic consciousness. To put it in quote one word. Okay. And that's not a bad one. That's good. That's fine. And that's like enlightenment. That's not the Buddhist definition, but that's close to the point. You know. It's just, it's not the Buddhist, you know, cosmic is not a Buddhist word exactly. We would say, you know, like total enlightenment. That was, that's what cosmic means, like total or complete. So I think that's a very good definition, and I like that. But since we're talking about definition of enlightenment again, let me give you the traditional Tibetan definition, which is succinct and a little boring, but it's to the point. It has two parts. Sangye means Buddha or Buddhahood or enlightened in Tibetan. Sang means purified. So it means purified of all the negative or the obscurations or whatever has to go, whatever is extra, mm -hmm. whatever is false. And gay means blossomed, so fully developed, evolved, actualized, of all the positive, of all the potential, of all that it can be. And one kind of leads to the next, doesn't it? I mean, the yeah. more, the well, more you remove the obscurations, the more the, the potential right. blossoms. Yeah, in the clouds, the more the sun shines, that's mm -hmm. always there. So the more the inner light shines out, if you want to look at it that way. So in Buddhism, perhaps there's no higher power in the traditional sense, but there's the inner power. But then that sounds like there's a difference between inner and outer. So it's, it's really not the inner power either, but it's the deeper power or the ultimate power. And here we, I am talking about power again. So <laughs> maybe I am a megalomaniac. Yeah, a power trip. God forbid. Yeah, so, so you asked me so if what I, I always say is my final statement about God and Buddhism is thank God for Buddhism. <laughs> it's, I love it. Yeah, it's good for me. That's why it's, I think it's the only way. Because for me, it's the only way for me. It's definitely the best way for, you. for me. Yeah. <laughs> so you asked me if I might want to ask you a more personal question. At least I think that's what you're asking. You know, here's one. You've been on this trip for over four decades. What is your moment-to-moment -moment experience of life like? And what is it like? And, and what is it like compared to what it might have been like had you just, you know, continued as Jeffrey Miller on Long Island and lived an ordinary life? And what is it like to experience through your eyes, through your heart right now? 
and throughout the day. It's great. It's good. I love this, what we're doing right now. This is what I do. Not always on Skype with an interviewer, but this is what I do. The Dharma. Not only what you're doing, what I'm getting at is your, state of, be. your state of consciousness. That's what I am. So it's great. It's wonderful. So is there some sort of abiding bliss or abiding awareness or, you know, I mean. Those are just ideas. I don't, I don't know. How would I, how, the fish doesn't know the sea. He just, you know, he or she just cruises around with his mouth open, making bubbles and gas. Most people have a very busy mind. And that's more or less all yes. they're aware of is their busy mind and their, their perceptions. But someone who has some spiritual maturity, sure, their mind is thinking thoughts and they're engaged in action. But there's a, there's a whole deeper dimension to their experience, to their life, that may not be so yeah. evident to outside observers. Everybody has that deeper dimension, but everybody's not that aware of it in themselves or in others or in every particle of life. So. It's not like you see different things, although you might have visions or other things or travel the world, see odd things, you know, great things and whatever, but you see things differently. Yeah. So what I'm trying to do is put you on the spot and say, and say no, why don't you ask the question you're really dying to ask that you would never ask because it's not very sophisticated. Are you enlightened? Well, yeah, I'm trying to beat around the bush. Come on, have, ask. All right. What, tell People me. Ask me that in public now and then. Okay. Are you enlightened? I'm enlightened enough. <laughs> enough for what? Enough for prime enough time? For now. <laughs> enough for me. Enough yeah. for now. I'm doing everything I can about it, and I'm satisfied with that to the extent that I can be now. And, you know, it's a process. It's an infinite journey, and it's not about me, as okay. you were saying. So, you know, there's no person, there's no one to get enlightened, but that's part of enlightenment. So you, you live out your personhood in this relative world as Joyce and Miller's son, Jeffrey. But, you know, that's just part of me. It's like I'm part animal like Hanuman and part God like Ram. That's why Hanuman is a God, because he gives his animal nature in service of the divine. So when Hanuman remembers who he is, he is God. When he forgets who he is, he serves God. Nice answer. That's kind of more or less the way I would answer it, somewhat ambivalently and as a work in progress. The rest of my life is like, so I said, it's good. It's happy enough. It's not just about happy. It's fulfilling. I love what I'm doing. I love the people I'm being with. Like, I love you, what we're doing together. What's better to do than chat Dharma with an old Dharma friend, even though we just met this way? Yeah. What's better? What if you got put in jail for some reason and you couldn't do what you were doing anymore? You just had to sit in a, in a jail cell without, with pretty much nothing to do. No, they can imprison my body, but they can't imprison my heart and mind. So I can still do what I'm doing. So you, I, don't, you don't feel like I, that would meditate, diminish your fulfillment? I could pray. There have been people who have been in jail, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and uh, Jesus and Gandhi and Sri Aurobindo. They were freedom fighters mm -hmm. trying to free India from the British rule. And they were in jail in the black hole of Calcutta. And, you know, they said, you can imprison my body, but you can't imprison my mind. Um, St. John of the Cross, he was stuck in a little closet for 14 years, couldn't, couldn't stand up, couldn't sit down, this tiny little horrible thing. Was that his dark night of the soul? When yeah. He dark night of the soul? Yeah, it was an you know, unbelievably miserable situation, but uh, he, I guess, maintained the light of God through all that. Well, wherever the light is brightest, the shadows are darkest, as you know. So although I sound like Pollyanna about what a be how beautiful life is, there's a lot of shit. And I was just in India. And dark side, and dark side in our own psyche too, mind too. I was just in India last month on one of my pilgrimages, 
to see my old friends in monasteries and go to Bodh Gaya and other place in Nepal and this and that. And I visited what they call the world's biggest slum, Dharavi, <coughs> in Bombay, where there's 10 or 12 million people slum dwell. It's where the slum dog millionaire was shot. Mm, yeah. And the slum people there hate that movie because it's so romanticized about it and also shows it worsened his. But it's the world's worst slum, but there's life there. There's parents loving children, there's children going to school. Let me tell you something positive about it. It's the place in India where Muslims and Hindus get together and live in harmony the best because mm. they have to in that slum. Millions of each. Interesting. It's awesome. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So it's not that everything is, is lotus blossoms and sunlight, you know, but just because it's raining doesn't mean it's a bad day. Maybe it's a good day for the farmers. Beautiful. Well, I'm feeling a little nervous because I know you have to. Thank you. You, you have to make Let a Let me trip. chant something. Yeah, please. Since you asked what I advocate, sure. I advocate a spiritual life and finding your own spiritual life, whatever that is. And, you know, whether you do your own or you follow in something that's there. And you know what? Um, before you start chanting, let me let me make my usual concluding remarks now, so that we okay. can just end this with the chanting and not have me start talking we'll, again. We'll go know? out singing. Yeah, you've been listening to an interview on Buddha the Gaspam. The implication of that title, by the way, if it's not obvious, is that in this day and age, there are people awakening in very ordinary ordinary people in ordinary circumstances, and so you know, don't consider it to be something that's far fetched and out of reach. This is as part of an ongoing series. There are over 200 of them now. You'll find them all archived at batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. There's both a alphabetical and a chronological listing of them there. You'll also find a, a chat group area for each interview and a link to that from the page of each interview. So Lam Suridas will have his own page. And on that, I'll link to his websites and his books and so on, and also to his the chat group area of BatGap for this interview. There is a link to an audio podcast. Many people like to just listen to the audio. There's a donate button, which I appreciate people clicking. There's a place for people to sign up to be notified by email of each new interview. That's about it. Thanks for listening or watching. And we're going to conclude with some chanting. Thank you. It's been beautiful, Rick. Thank you for your beautiful good works. I like your title, Buddha at the Gas Pump, because I'm a fan of Buddha, but also. In one of my books, I think it was Awakening the Buddha Within, but it might be, you know, it's probably Buddha's as Buddha does, how to be a bodhisattva warrior. I talk about Exxon Ken the, the, in Woodstock, who used to take care of everybody's cars and not send bills to the poor people mm. in Woodstock. And, but he was kind of a redneck and, a, you know, shout, Archie Bunker shouting, kind of beer drinking, kind of rough guy, but with a heart of gold. He was like the bodhisattva at the gas pump. Nice. Woodstock in the 60s and 70s. He would give snow tires to the welfare mothers and stuff like that and not charge them because they need the snow tires to drive their kids around in the winter in snowy Catskill Mountains. Beautiful. Kind of reminds me of Forrest Gump again. He said, uh, I may not be a smart man, but I know what love is. Yeah, <laughs> that's the most important thing. Makye panang ye guchi ke panyam pa me pa yam kane kandu
May the lamp of enlightenment be ignited where it has not yet arisen and where it has arisen may be fanned into flame, blaze up and illumine all beings, the hearts and minds, bodies and souls of all beings throughout the universe that we may all together completely fulfill the spiritual journey. An homage to the Buddha, the Buddha-ness in your seat. Don't overlook it. Thank you. Thank you. Have a safe trip. Thanks. Stay in tush. I will. Bye-bye, <laughs> Rick. Bye.